Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone. You know, this, I think many of you know, I, um, I love to read books that deal with history. I, I'm always reading at least one, sometimes two. I've been known to have three going on concurrently in different places, one in the office, one in the car, one in the house. And I was, I was reading uh, recently and was reminded of an event that occurred during the Civil War. Um, a, a Union general, it's the second battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse in 1864, and uh, Major General John Sedgwick, uh, they were in the battle, and he was angry at his officers and his, his troops because they were all hiding, they were taking cover. Uh, more than a thousand yards away were, was the Confederate lines, and they had sharpshooters. And if, now, you know, this is in the Civil War. A thousand yards was a long way away. And so, yet they were hiding from these sharpshooters. And he's out there going, What are you guys doing? Get up. Don't be such cowards. Come on, we got to get ready for the battle. And then he said these famous last words <laughs> They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. <laughs> Boom. They hit him. Famous last words. I, I kind of collect famous last words. Some of them are ironically tragic, somewhat humorous in hindsight like that. Um, some of them are very inspiring, like uh, the blues and uh, singer Bessie Smith. As she took her last breath, she said, quote, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord, end quote. And, and contrast that with another famous singer, Frank Sinatra, Old Blue Eyes. He said, quote, I'm losing, end quote. And then, of course, some are very precious. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, the novelist, in his last breath, he turns to, turned to his wife and said, quote, you are wonderful. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. And then, of course, com com comedians aren't going to miss the opportunity. Groucho Marx, his last words, quote, this is no way to live, 
<laughs> so he, he died at that time. Um, I bring that up because chapter 24 actually records for us the last words of Joshua to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> These are his famous last words. And the theme of his last words provides us with our takeaway truth this morning, the final one from this book that we have studied. We started back in the fall in Joshua 1. We conclude the book this morning. And this final theme, final takeaway truth, to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Now, when you think about his life, you want to listen to a man like Joshua. You want to understand why would he say in his last address to the people, fear the Lord, serve him faithfully. Now, to understand why he says this, we actually have to go to the very beginning of the book. We're going to cover pretty much, or excuse me, the beginning of the chapter. We're going to pretty much cover the entire chapter this morning, even though we only read, for the sake of time, a portion of it. So let's begin at the, at the start of chapter 24, noting, as Joshua does in his final words, God's covenantal faithfulness. Verse 1 tells us that he has gathered the nation together at Shechem. You know, saw last week, chapter 23, he gathered the leaders together at his home, and he gave them a final admonition. But now he's called the entire nation, probably around 2 million people, to gather at Shechem. And a scene that we've kind of saw 30 years before. I don't know if you remember this. This is really taxing your memory. Uh, but back in Joshua chapter 8, after they defeated the, the city of Ai and they destroyed that city, he marched the entire nation over to Shechem. And this was a holy site for the Israelites, <clears throat> still is to this day. He put half the nation on Mount uh, Eba, Eba, I'm forgetting it, and the other one was uh, Zeravim. And uh, he, he had an altar built, they sacrificed, they, they read the, the covenant that God had given through Moses. They recited and understood the, the curses and the consequences that would happen if they disobeyed the covenant. They recited the blessings that would happen if they obeyed the covenant. And that site, that day, was a scene of covenantal renewal, that entire ceremony that God had commanded all the way back in the Torah. That when they entered the promised land, they were to come to Shechem and do this. Well, now we're 30 years later. And again, Joshua calls the people to Shechem to come to what we realize is another ceremony to renew this covenant that God made with them through Moses. Shechem was a, a holy place. This is the place where Abraham came when he first entered the promised land and where God came to him for the first time and told him, all this land is going to be your land and the land of your people. So here in Joshua 24, we see that that promise to Abraham has now come true. Shechem is the place where Jacob built an altar when he returned from his 20 years of serving his crooked father-in-law. And he came into Shechem, builds an altar, worships God. After Jacob's name is changed to Israel, he realizes that his family, including his wife, has all kinds of false gods that they've been worshiping kind of on the, on the QT. And he gathers all of their idols. And at Shechem, underneath the oak tree, he buries their idols, representing that my family is only going to worship the God of the Bible. So what we have here in Joshua 24 is a covenant renewal ceremony. You see, in, in the Bible, to understand the Bible, you have to realize that God relates to us through covenants. 
And these covenants take a particular form. And that form, again, for those of you who like history, is based upon a historical form. In that day, a, a conquering king like the Hittites were very well known for this. When they conquered another people, that conquering king, the stronger king, would establish a suzerain treaty or a covenant with the conquered people. And that covenant had very distinct features. And you look at them historically, and you see this pattern in all of these covenants. And you see that pattern in the scriptures. You see that pattern here in Joshua 24. So, for example, in the ancient world, it would always begin with a declaration of who that stronger, sovereign, powerful king was and who he was and what he had done, even for the benefit of the people that maybe he had conquered or that were entering into a treaty with him. And then after that declaration of identity and, benefit and who he was, there would come a section of obligations. This is what you, the weaker people, are to do in obedience to me, the stronger king. And then after that would be a section of, here's what's going to happen to you if you don't. And here's what will happen to you if you do. Curses and blessings. And then in some way, there would be a, a sealing of that covenant, a witness to their vows to abide by the covenant, both the king and the vassals. And this is what you have here in Joshua chapter 24. In the opening verses, verses 2 to 13, you see God reminding Israel of who he is and what he's done for them. He identifies himself. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And then over the next several verses, God in the first person voice says, listen, here's what I did for all the patriarchs. And here's what I did for your descendants who then went into Egypt and were in slavery for 400 years. And here's how I freed them from slavery. And here's how I took care of my chosen people, even as they had to wander the wilderness for 40 years. And then you yourself know that this is what I did for you as you came into Canaan and began this conquest of these people. So in these opening 13 verses, <clears throat> Israel is, uh, is uh, called to remember who their God is, to identify who God is, and to understand his character. They were to remember who they would be if it were not for God's faithfulness to them, where they would be if it were not for God's grace upon their lives, what they would be experiencing if it had not been for God's merciful intervention for them. Because church, Israel's history doesn't start with a morally great upstanding man who then God rewards for his service and character and worship. The story of Israel starts with a pagan, Abraham, his father. They worship the false gods of the Babylonians. They were false God worshipers. They were idolaters of the worst kind, and yet God chose them. And by extension, he chose Israel, not according to their works and what they deserved. He chose them in spite of what they deserved. He chose them according to his divine grace. And that same grace is, and that same story is our story. 
Because in our natural state, we are born into this world as natural men and women, and we are antagonistic towards God. We are pagan just as much as Abram was in Ur of the Chaldees or as the Israelites were in Egypt when they were worshiping the gods of their slave masters. We start life in that same exact condition with nothing within us that should compel God to pour out his grace and mercy upon us. But Paul reminds us of the unlimited graciousness of our God. In Ephesians chapter 1, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. How God interacted with Israel, how he interacted with Abram, is how he has interacted with each and every one of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It's happened because of the covenantal faithfulness and character of our God. Amen. Now, after establishing, remember the structure, the identity what God has done, it now moves to the obligations. And that's what we see beginning in verse 14 with Joshua's, I think, timeless exhortation to the people. In light of who God is, in these opening verses, in the sovereign, uh, his sovereign work as the Lord of the universe, verses 14 and 15 put before us this, the obligations that are only reasonable. It's only reasonable and common sense to respond to this great God in a particular way. And how is that response? Verse 14, now fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. For those of you who aren't familiar with that phrase, certainly the Israelites had seen things over the last decades where God used his power on their behalf that could be qualified as terror, terrifying. But this is not talking about us staying in a state of abject terror and horror, afraid of God like we would the boogeyman, you know, something along those lines. Not at all. This is a special phrase in the Bible. The fear of the Lord is an abiding and reverent sense of God's presence in my life. It's an abiding sense of awe over his presence in the world. It's a reverent sense of his lordship and mastery of my life. It is a, is a state of submission where I recognize that I am accountable to my creator. So he starts by saying, how do we respond to this great God? Fear the Lord. And secondly, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Remember, the theme of this entire exhortation and passage is this idea. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. You see, that inner heart attitude of reverential awe, of a reverential sense of my accountability, of, of his lordship over my life, it should produce something from within that is reflected in my life externally in a tangible, practical, everyday way. It will reveal itself, that inner heart attitude will reveal itself in complete worship and service a willingness to bow before him. The idea here is that we are living for God in every dimension of our lives with integrity in order to 
honor him. So fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness, put away, thirdly, the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Let's pause here for a second. Why would Joshua say that? I mean, after everything that the Israelites have seen, it is actually, I mean, it's inconceivable that they would still have loyalty to the false gods of Egypt, their captors, or the, the false god of Baal Peor with the Amorites, or that horrendous god that we talked about a few weeks ago, Chemosh, the, the primary god of the Canaanites. How would there be any loyalty to those gods? Yet, that false worship was evidently there. It was a a quiet enemy lurking beneath the surface that was just waiting to burst forth. And when it did, it will bring a devastation to the people. And so we look at this because it's inconceivable that they would worship these gods. How could they ever do that? But should it actually really be that big of a surprise to us? I mean, when we look at our own lives, should it be that big of a surprise? Dr. James Boyce writes, are we any better? Those who know their hearts know that the sins of the past cling closely to us and are a danger at every turn. So it is always necessary to reject the faults and choose and continue always to choose to worship and serve the true God. Yeah, we can understand how they could live this way because every single one of us and a myriad of ways, replicate that same idea in our own lives at any given time of the week because of that sin that still clings so closely to us. So he says, fear the Lord, serve him completely, put away the false gods. In verse 15, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you dwell. Now listen, the religious pluralist, the person who believes that you know, all religions are basically equal, that all roads lead to heaven, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just as long as you believe, and that philosophical relativist who says, you know, it's true if it's true for you. If it works for you, it's true. So what's important is that you just choose a religion. They look at verse 15 and he goes, see right there, Joshua's just saying, hey, look, just choose, man. Just choose a religion. It's all good. That's not what Joshua's saying. Not at all. You see, Joshua, he recognizes something fundamental about the human condition. That we are created in the image of God, and this means that we are hardwired to worship. You are created to worship someone or something, and you are going to worship something, someone. Even if you're just worshiping yourself, you're going to do this because we are created in the image of God, and we're created to worship. So he is not supporting you know, uh, some kind of relativism or you know, some kind of religious pluralism. Instead, what he's actually doing is he's, you know, he's calling the question for the Israelites. He's saying, look, you've got to stop, guys. You can't, you can't you know, worship a little bit of Yahweh and a little bit of Molech and a little bit of Baal Peor and let's throw in Ra, the sun god, for extra measure. You, you can't worship 
Yahweh and anything else. It is either you worship Yahweh alone and you're devoted to him, or you need to worship these other gods, but stop straddling the fence. Choose who you're going to worship. Israel, who this day will you worship? Choose this day whom you will serve, whom you will worship. And that message is his message to us today. Covenant. Choose this day whom you will worship. Teenagers, choose this day who you will worship and serve. Who are you going to listen to? The gods of this culture and this world that bombard you with ideas and philosophies and thoughts that are antithetical to everything that Jesus tells us in the gospel? Or are you going to serve and worship Jesus? Engineers, nurses, teachers, people in business, choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve and worship your career or are you going to serve and worship your God? Which one will be God to you? Because our careers can be just as much a God that we worship as our Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua's answer to his question, it's a timeless answer. It's one, let's, let's, let's confess, who of you at one time or another has had Joshua's answer hanging in some way on the wall of your home? Raise your hand. Yeah, bunches of us. As for me and my house, we will Famous words. Great words. Do you know what he's actually saying here to the Israelites? Literally, if you look at the tense of the words, he says, Israel, I made my choice in the past years ago to worship and serve the Lord. I have made the choice to worship and serve every day since. I make the choice today to worship and serve the Lord. And I will make the choice every day between now and the time I die to worship and serve the Lord. That is the absolute commitment of Joshua that he means in those words. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No wonder his faith, unlike so many, was a victorious faith. No wonder he, unlike so many, experienced in such a vivid way the presence and the power of God working through his life. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So how does Israel respond to this? This is the obligation. Here's the requirement. If you want to renew the covenant, here's what it means to renew this covenant. And how do they respond? Well, we read portion of it this morning with Jonathan. They respond in verse 16. The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. 
He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Wow. Listen to those words. A few observations right off the bat. Those are inspiring words, aren't they? I mean, wouldn't you want any of your children to respond that way to the call of the Lord upon their life? I mean, wouldn't we want that for ourselves? How encouraging and inspiring it is to see Israel's response in this way. They profess their allegiance to the Lord. They renew their commitment and their allegiance to the covenant. And, and by the way, for this generation, this is the conquest generation. This is the generation that came in with Joshua. They have fought the wars. They have bled on the battlefield, and they have seen God work. Their response, by and large, is sincere. Scripture itself, later on in the chapter, near the end of the chapter, the author makes this kind of side comment. that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So in these words, one thing we need to observe is that these people, at least a majority of them, this was sincere. But we also need to note that there were those in the community, in the covenant community, who were members of the covenant community, but their membership was nothing more than a physical, temporal membership. It was not a spiritual, eternal membership. And the reason why you know this is because of what is not said in this passage. What is not said is that when they were confronted by this exhortation from Joshua to go and destroy and put away their false gods, they said, okay, we will, but what you don't read is what? That they did it. You see, in other places in the Old Testament, even here in the book of Joshua, when the people repented of something, that true repentance was always followed up with the fruits of repentance. As the Apostle James says, faith without works is dead. And so on one level, yes, they had a, a belief in the God of Israel, but it was not an eternal salvific belief. It was an intellectual allegiance that the people of Israel. This is always been the case within the people of God, that there are those whose membership is simply physical and temporal. It's not the more important membership, the spiritual and eternal membership. And so I would put this before you as the people of God, as members of this church, is your membership more than just a physical, temporal you know, allegiance to a group of people and to the concept of Jesus, or is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Are you committed to him? Are you a member of his eternal church, the holy Catholic church that we talked about in the creed? Is not referring to Roman Catholicism? It's talking about the church of God through the ages and in our world today that goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and proceeds all the way to the end. And it's made up of everyone who is trusting in the grace of our heavenly father through Jesus Christ. Is that where your membership is? That membership is infinitely more important than your membership at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Understand that. 
We should also realize from these words that Joshua knows what's really going on, and he understands that God does not ignore our idolatry. God does not wink at idolatry. Verse 19 and 20 is a tough verse, isn't it? You're not able to serve him. He's a jealous God. And then there's this phrase that makes many of us go, he will not forgive your transgressions and sins. I mean, what? what? Time out. What do you say? Doesn't 1 John 1, 9 say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Don't you hear almost every Sunday morning that if you will come to God with humility and pour out your heart to him and confess your sin, he forgives it, cleanses all of it. You hear it almost every week, don't you? And yet you have Joshua saying this. What's going on? It seems like there's a contradiction here. There isn't. Understand that Joshua isn't talking at that day. Let's just say that Charlie was there, part of the, God, uh, the crowd, and Charlie had his little chemosh idol at the house that he was worshiping without Janie knowing because if Janie had known, he'd have been in all kinds of trouble, right? And so he has his secret chemosh, and he's been worshiping, and he is convicted, and he responds, and he goes, yes, I will serve the Lord. And he goes home, and he repents, and he destroys that idol. Does this mean that God would not, would not forgive Charlie, the individual? No, not at all. That's not what's going on here. You see, Joshua's a realist. He understands that the seeds of Israel's destruction have already been sown deeply into the fabric of the nation. That there is going to be a harvest. There is going to be a consequence to this idolatry. Two or three times in this passage, he tells them, put your false gods away. Because he understands something. That in time, the Israelites would turn to these false gods and that's exactly what they did. The generation arises, Josh Judges 2, we saw it last week, that did not know the Lord, did not remember Joshua, and so therefore they all did, every man, that which was right in his own eyes, even worshiping the gods, the false gods of the culture. And what happened because of that? God would not forgive that idolatry and wink at it. Instead, he brought judgment down upon the nation. You see, this is a declaration to the nation of Israel that if you turn from God, he's not going to wink at it. He's not going to ignore it. He's going to bring his judgment upon you because he is a jealous, holy God. He'll not allow it. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what has happened in nation after nation in the annals of history. And I would contend we're experiencing it ourselves today. God's covenantal faithfulness. It's on full display. His timeless exhortation that Joshua gives us reveals to us the obligations and how we are to respond. And then you see the renewal and the promises of blessings that will come. So, so what? What? So what? What do we make of all this? How does this apply to us? I mean, we're not sitting on a hillside in Shechem 3,500 years ago. Well, Francis Schaeffer writes about this passage of Scripture. Whether Christian or non-Christian, we're called upon to make choices which will have significant results. Some of you this morning, you're 
you're seeking answers. You're seeking truth. You don't really even know what quite to make of everything I've said this morning. And that's okay. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're looking for answers. You know, 3,400 years ago, Israel's sitting on two mountains, and Joshua puts before them an important choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. He had two choices. They had two destinies. There was false gods, which would lead to destruction. There's the one true God, which would lead to life, an eternal life. And what you see in the New Testament, 1,400 years or so later, is our greater Joshua, Jesus, the English name for that, Joshua, Yeshua. And Jesus, our greater Joshua, does the exact same thing as Joshua does here in chapter 24 on several occasions. So, for example, there was one time when he had a group of people together, and he's teaching and preaching to them, and he says, there are two roads. One is a broad road. It is a nice road. It is a smooth road. It is an easy road. It has lots of rest stops. It has plenty of buckies. It has everything you could ever want on this road, and it will give you a great life. And most people that you know are going to choose this road But what you don't know is that this road leads to destruction. It will cost you your soul. But there's another road. It's a narrow road. It's a hard road. In fact, you have to take up the cross and follow me to be on this road. This road is not easy. Very few people choose to get on this road in response to God's call upon their life. This road is hard. But this road leads to life. Two choices, two different destinies. He said it a different way in terms that we can appreciate in Florida. He says to a crowd one time, your, house, your life is like a house. He used a house metaphor. And you're building your house, you're building your life, and you're making your house beautiful. And it looks great to everybody who knows it. And you fill that house with all the latest toys and accoutrements of modern success and society. And as wonderful as that house is, unfortunately, you're building that house, your life, on the sand. And so when the hurricane comes along, splat, the house is destroyed. That's your destiny if you choose to build your house, your life, on the sand. But there's another choice. You can build your house, your life, on the rock. The unmovable rock. The eternal rock. The unshakable rock. The undefeatable rock. The rock that is Jesus Christ. For he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father through me. So choose. Where will you build your house? On the sand that leads to destruction or to the rock that can withstand any storm? And will bring you safely through to the end. Choose this day whom you will serve. To encourage you, seeker. Jesus, he demands that you choose. But then he gives this wonderful promise of blessing. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. 
and the way that Jesus was able to bring about this rest and provide it was that he created a covenant with us, a new covenant. And in that covenant, he identifies himself as the great I am, who before Abraham was, I am. The one who was with Moses in the desert in the burning bush. The one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And he identifies himself, and then he lays out in the new covenant the obligation, if you want this rest, it means that you make a choice to reject your self-reliance and your own efforts at earning God's forgiveness, that instead you simply throw yourself at the mercy of our Heavenly Father. And you receive the forgiveness that is there for you at the cross, and yet you acknowledge that Jesus is God in the flesh that he died for you and that he will save you from your sins. And so you commit your life to him as Lord and Savior. And the blessings that come about from making that choice, he says rest, not temporary rest, true, soul-satisfying rest, satisfaction, total satisfaction, complete satisfaction, satisfaction that doesn't go away simply because your bank account goes up or down. Security eternally held firm in the hands of your Savior and no one will pluck you out of his hands. And peace, true peace, the peace that passes all understanding. This is what comes for the one who commits their life to Christ. And if you're looking for answers, this passage is saying, choose you this day whom you will worship and serve. And Jesus says, who you should choose is me. Because I'm that rock. I'm that one who can give you eternal life. And he confirmed that covenant with us. And he bore witness to it by shedding his blood on the cross eternally binding himself to its fulfillment for all who trust in him. And so if you don't know Christ this morning, I hope that today, today is the day for your salvation. And believers, the same question is ours. Joshua's daily choice, who will you choose today? We cannot rest upon some decision that we made in the past it is a daily, minute by minute, even hourly decision as we live our lives to follow and serve the Lord. David Jackman writes, the certain reality is that we all serve either the living God or ourselves through the medium of our idols. Think of some of them. Are we really prepared to give God the reins of control over our marriage and our family? Or do we expect our spouse to give us what only God can give and try to control our family so they will fulfill our ambitions for them? Whom will we serve? Are we prepared to put our careers into God's hands to be content for him to guide us, to govern our time and priorities so that we're not consumed by our work idolatry, its status, its power, or success? Are we willing to put our future in God's hands, to trust him for whether we marry, and if so, whom? Will we ask him to give us wisdom about where we should live and how we should use our resources? These are real challenges, aren't they? Make no mistake, we all serve something or someone. So then choose this day. Whom will you serve?
This is a great chapter. Great final words. And there is a very, very important element of it that everyone overlooks. But in this last little bit, there's a needed encouragement that we all should hear this morning. In verse 26, in verse 26, Joshua responds to the people. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. This is our eighth stone memorial in the book of Joshua. We have looked, I think, at every single one of them except one. You remember the first one when they came across the river? I mean, that was a stone memorial of celebration. But most of the stone memorials in the book of Joshua are somber, like this one. There's a tone of warning, of judgment that's there, of what can happen if, or what happens if, and, and, and there's somber warnings to us. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, I am so glad for Jesus' sacrifice and the covenant he has made. Because our greater Joshua has given us a better stone to consider. When you think about Jesus and he establishes the new covenant in his blood and he dies upon the cross, he is then put inside of a tomb and that tomb is sealed with a stone. But on the third day, that stone was rolled away and it bore witness that the tomb was empty. And so seeker, in the new covenant, that stone is a witness to you of the absolute faithfulness of God. Just as God the Father was faithful to God the Son, He will be faithful to you. He will forgive you of all of your sins. He will welcome you into His family as a loved son or daughter of God with an eternal destiny of peace, true peace. That stone is a witness to you this morning. Christian, that stone is a witness to us too. Not only of God's absolute faithfulness, but of God's absolute power. Because the power which raised Jesus from the dead on that day that that stone reveals is the same resurrection power that resides in each and every one of us. And so this week, when we are confronted with that question and this very moment, with that temptation, that trial, choose this moment, who will you worship and serve? You have the power of God and the Holy Spirit inside of you that empowers the, us to say, I choose Jesus. May we lean into that power this week. It's our only hope for serving him and worshiping him. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have that gift of the Holy Spirit, that you have confirmed your covenant with us by indwelling us with him. Lord, I would pray this morning in the quietness of this moment and this prayer that the Holy Spirit would move in the hearts of those who are here who have yet to commit their life to Christ. Some may not be members, they, they may be even just here for the first or second or third time. And Lord, I pray that even today you would drive deep into their heart this conviction that what they heard this morning is truth that they can build their life upon. Some may be members already of our church, 
May you remove the blinders, Holy Spirit, so they can see their need to surrender to you and put the false gods away. And Lord, for those of us who follow you, we have that remaining corruption. Would you help us to lean into your power this week so that we may serve you faithfully and sincerely and be people of a victorious faith. In your name I ask these things, Jesus. Amen.